Welcome to the Great Trials Podcast, where you get a behind-the-scenes look at America's greatest trials with the trial lawyers who tried them. The top executive and two of his top lieutenants didn't even come to testify. Uh, They did not walk in the courtroom door. It's very easy in a case to try an empty chair. One of the most important things about a good, effective lawyer is it's not the law, it's your common sense. You have to have common sense. Please rise, court is now in session. Welcome to the Great Trials Podcast. Uh, As always, I am your host, Steve Lowry, and here with me is the always uh, fearless Yvonne Godfrey. (laughs) And uh, and, and Yvonne, I got to tell you that that I have been uh, asked by someone near and dear to the podcast and and to me uh, that maybe we should end doing the adjectives for you. So I thought we'd just talk about it and see what what, what we think and what what our listeners may think about that. So you're telling me that someone near and dear to the podcast wanted you to stop paying me compliments at the beginning of each episode. Exactly. Exactly. I want to know who it is. (laughs) Right. Right. (laughs) Um, No, that's fine. I mean, as long as you pay me lots of compliments off the air, I'm willing. I'm willing to ditch them during the episodes. You know, I always will. I always will. (laughs) (laughs) Well, um, well, I'm really excited about today's episode. We have uh, just a fantastic trial lawyer, uh, somebody who uh, we've had already had fantastic trial lawyers on, but somebody who's truly just a a legend when it comes to uh, cases that that he's tried, uh, put in front of a jury, and just gotten tremendous results. We have Steve Sussman, uh, the senior partner at Sussman Godfrey, based out of Houston, Texas. His website is sussmangodfrey.com. Steve, thank you so much for joining us. You're welcome. I'm glad to be here. So, Steve, I, I just want to give our listeners a little flavor of of your background and um, and so they know who you are. And again, everybody can, can go to sussmangodfrey.com to look you up. Um, no, no relation, we should mention. I, There's no- yeah, I was thinking about that. <laughs> Unfortunately. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> so, uh, so Steve uh, is a, has been a partner in Sussman Godfrey. Um, well, I, to be honest, I'm not sure how long, but you um, went to undergrad. At, we've had a few people who've gone to this small law school, I mean, this small school up in uh, the Northeast called Yale. Uh, and I've heard that's a pretty good school. Um, and then, uh, and then went to law school at the University of Texas, Austin. Uh, Steve, you have been named as uh, one of the top 10 litigators in the nation uh, back in 2006. Uh, you were named in an article, which I, I just love the name of this article, one of 11 lawyers you do not want to see on the other side of the aisle uh, in the nation. Uh, Steve was, was named in that. Uh, he has been named in the best lawyers of America every year for the past 25 years um, and been named the top 10 lawyers in Texas, one of the top uh, I'm not sure how they came up with this number, but one of the top 483 lawyers in the world. Right, right, exactly. Um, and uh, and I should should mention, Steve, that after you graduated from the University of Texas Law School, you uh, went on and clerked for uh, the Justice Hugo Black uh, at the U.S. Supreme Court. Uh, yes. Um, tremendous honor. And, um, and you've had many, many uh, victories throughout your career, but uh, one of the very first was back in 1980, you tried a case uh, that involved price fixing, a price fixing cons- conspiracy, and had a $550 million verdict uh, in 1980, which uh, had to be unheard of at that time. It was. <laughs> right. it was. 
It's, there are a lot of them now, but right. well, there aren't a lot of them now, but <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. They, they, I, they're still bad. not that common. Right. <laughs> but, um, well, Steve, thank you so much for coming on and, and, uh, um, we, we are so happy to have you on and, and thank you for joining us. I'm glad to be here. Thank you. So, so the case that we're talking about today, Steve, is a case, uh, it, it's got a long name, but I'm going to call it Casey versus Simmons. Uh, and this is, was essentially a business tort case or a, a, um, a yeah, a business case. Uh, it was tried in Dallas County, Texas, uh, in 2009. Uh, and the verdict was a compensatory damages verdict of $33.7 million, followed by a punitive uh, verdict of $145 million for a total verdict of $178.7 million. Um, obviously, just, uh, just fantastic work. Um, so, Steve, I'm going to give a little background of, of my understanding of the facts of the case. And when I uh, screw up or get something wrong, just uh, just point it out and let me know where I've messed up. Um, so, as I understand it, Steve, this involved a company. Uh, well, well, uh, there's, a, there's a lot of parts of this story, and I, and I want you to, to tell all these parts. But there is a, a very uh, wealthy person named Harold Simmons that used to live in Dallas, Texas. I think he's since passed away. Um, uh, who owned a company uh, called Contran that owned a company called NL Industries. And NL Industries uh, used to be known as National Lead. And um, National Lead started back in the late 1800s and essentially was a mining and smelting company of lead. And as you might imagine, uh, mining and smelting of lead can cause uh, a lot of damage to the land where it's being done, a lot of environmental damage. And because of that, the EPA uh, had required NL Industries to uh, clean up a number of properties around uh, the United States. Correct. And, and so um, NL Industries came up with this idea, which sounded like a pretty innovative idea at the time. Instead of paying a law firm and, a, and, a, and an engineering firm by the hour to go clean up these, that they were going to form another company uh, that was called NL Environmental Management Services, uh, that they would transfer some of those properties, the liabilities of those properties, and then basically make it incentive-based so that if they could clean them up faster and cheaper and increase the value, then the owners of that company, in theory, uh, should benefit from that. Um, and you represent... Sorry, go ahead. The theory was the theory was that if they put just enough, they put like a hundred million dollars of liabilities, contingent liabilities in this company, and also put in something worth a hundred million dollars, the company would have zero value. Right. Anyone owned stock at the beginning would have zero value. If you then got someone to manage the company. Uh, and gave them an incentive by giving them stock ownership. And what they did is they got three guys, NL Industry got three guys, two of whom already worked for them, but three guys to come in and invest. I mean, they didn't have to put much in, but they essentially bought 39% of the company. It was like for a few cents. It wasn't anything. But right. they, and then NL owned 60%. And so, if, if the guys were successful in dealing with these liabilities and getting NL, getting off the liabilities, getting them reduced, 
the value, the company would have value, the stock would have value, their stock ownership, their 40% would have value. And someday, and they had an agreement actually, that seven years later, uh, the deal took place in 1998. In 2005, these three shareholders had a right to make NL buy the stock back at right. a fair value. And there was a contract that gave them a formula for buying it back. And that's how they, these fellows would be compensated. They did that for seven years. Uh, and, and also NL at the last minute also found out that if they did this, they could get a big tax deduction, right. a write-off, because they were getting rid of all these liabilities off their book. So they could get a big, I mean, they were essentially paying $100 million, and they get a tax deduction, which would mean a lot of money to them. So uh, these guys worked for seven years, reducing the liabilities, and the company had, we thought, a lot of value. Uh, and what happened was that as 2005 approached, uh, the people who were running NL Industries, including Harold Simmons, we allege came up with this scheme to reduce the amount of money NL would have to pay for the 40% of the stock that my three clients owned. Right. And that's what it was about. And uh, before the lawsuit was filed, NL had offered my three clients $3 million. We thought that they should have been more like $30 million. Right. So that's what the suit was. We sued them for breach of contract and we sued them for breach of fiduciary duty. Uh, yeah, Steve, if you could go ahead and make sure to explain to our listeners, what does that mean, fiduciary duty? You did a great job explaining it in your opening. and, and uh, uh, Well, if you have a relationship of trust and confidence with someone, now it, it, it's got to be more than subjective trust and confidence. It would be, you know, people who are partners have a fiduciary duty to each other, law partners. Right. Uh, people who run a company, the directors of a company, have a fiduciary duty to the stockholders in the company. The law on sudden relationships says you are a fiduciary. The, the most common example is a trustee of a trust. You set up a trust, a bank is a trustee, and what a fiduciary has to do is put the interest of the beneficiary above their own personal interest. Right. And if the beneficiary alleges that the fiduciary did a transaction that was unfair, was either unfair in the way it was done or unfair in the result or was not with full disclosure, the burden shifts the law in many states, this is the common law, shifts the burden of proof to the fiduciary to prove that if this was above board, I disclosed everything, it was fair, I didn't benefit at the expense of my the people I'm a fiduciary for. So that's what a fiduciary duty is. And we claim that the majority shareholders in the company, the one who's who owns 60%, had a fiduciary duty to the minority shareholders because the people who own 60% control what the company did. And so that's a tort. We also had a breach of contract claim. So there were two claims. And right. uh, we, we got into this case and uh, it turns out that uh, 
um, uh, the lawyer on the other side was a great lawyer. Is a great lawyer in Dallas named Dick Sales. The law, my co-counsel, who represented one of the three shareholders, was a fellow named Tom Melsheimer, who's in Dallas now. And uh, I got Tom involved because there was kind of a conflict between one of the three plaintiffs and the other two. Okay. Uh, one was a lawyer. Right. And the company was contending that that lawyer breached his fiduciary duty as a lawyer to the company. <clears throat> so they had a, the company had a different kind of defense against the lawyer, uh, a fellow named Martin, than it did against everyone else, against the other two, Murphy and Casey. So I represented Murphy and Casey. Melsheimer represented Martin. And sales represented all the defendants. One of the first things I did when I got involved in the case was I told Dick Sales, who is a great lawyer and a great friend of mine. So I have this theory as a lawyer that you don't have to be, you can be effective and strong without being mean and 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 nasty. Yeah. And uh, and I call it trial by agreement. And I have a website called trialbyagreement.com. And I have for 25, 30 years put on that website agreements that we make with the other counsel about how we're going to try the case. And so I sent the agreements the minute I got hired to Richard Sales, Dick Sales. I said, can you live with these things? And he came back and he agreed to most of the things that I proposed. Uh, and we had like, we were going to limit the length of the trial to two weeks. We so, were going to allow the jurors to ask questions. All these things we agreed on. This episode of the Great Trials podcast is brought to you by Legal Technology Services, or LTS. Yvonne, have you ever been in the courtroom and right when you're about to make the big point to the judge or to the jury, play a video, bring up a document, and your technology has frozen or not worked? No joke, Steve, that has never happened to me because I use LTS. Yes, and LTS, Legal Technology Services, are experts at legal courtroom technology, whether you're talking about demonstrative exhibits, playing videos, doing day in the life videos, or doing settlement videos, or just presenting your evidence to the jury. These are the experts. They can also help you out as far as scheduling depositions nationwide. They can take care of it, arrange for the court reporter, the videographer, arrange the location. They get what a trial involves, they get what a deposition involves, and you can use them to make your life a lot easier. They have also been voted four times as either the best of trial services or best hot seat technician by the Daily Report. So you should definitely call them up. And when you do, mention the Great Trials podcast. And that's Legal Technology Services. You can talk to Bob, Melanie, or anyone else on their team. They are fantastic people and fantastic at their jobs. Legal Technology Services at LTSAtlanta.com. That's LTSAtlanta.com. Can, can I ask you, you know, what, I, I saw that trial by agreement. I've seen your website. When you make that agreement with the defense, is that then entered by the court as a court order? It, it does not need to be. It's I, I try. It's supposed to be in writing, because agreements are in writing. Right. I, I'll tell you a very interesting. I mean, this is how interesting it, the life is. 
when I we agree with Jim say with Dick Sales on a number of things. The jurors can ask questions. They can take notes. The judge will give the instructions at the beginning of the case. Uh, we will have a time limited trial. We went all these things we agreed to. We show up in front of Judge Craig Smith, a judge in Dallas who's still on the bench in Dallas, and we tell Craig, Judge Smith, we've made these agreements, Your Honor. And he says, well, hold up. This is my courtroom. <laughs> I don't do things that way in my courtroom. You, you're not going to tell me how to try this case. And we, like, were amazed because here are the lawyers who are usually fighting come in with yeah. an agreement, and the judge is saying he's not going to do it. <laughs> we came back the next morning, and Judge Smith said, you know, I've been thinking about this. <laughs> this is your case. You are the lawyers. I have to trust you. I think I'm going to just enjoy if you guys want it done this way, you're both fine lawyers, we're going to do it this way. We did it that way, and it was so successful. I mean, it was not – I mean, I'm talking successful in the sense that Dick Sales left, and we are friends to this day. Right. Uh, I mean, very close friends. Uh, last year, he was recognized as the most outstanding lawyer in Dallas, and I was there to present – be on a program with him because we he's written a book he and tom melsheimer wrote a book about this trial called on the jury trial which is all about and the judge now has become a total convert to <laughs> all these innovations and writes about them and talks about them so it was a unique trial for him a unique trial experience for us and the dick go, and i've been going around the country talking about how you don't need to fight about these things. These are the things you can do. So that's why it was a great trial and one that I want to talk about because it has become, you know, kind of a model. We got a great result and yet we did it in a great way. Um, and I should mention real quick, since we just talked about the, the book on the jury trial, I read the the portion that you had sent us and it's, re it's really cool. I like the way it's set up and that it's got, you know, it's got an excerpt of, of the, this, the part that you sent us has an excerpt of a real closing argument and then kind of inserted in there is a description of this is what the lawyer is trying to do here. And this is why the whole book's that way. Yeah. yeah it's very cool. Yeah. Thank you. And I think it's, uh, and that's what I said. I think I wrote a little piece on the cover of the book that said, I've given a copy of it to every lawyer in my firm. Uh, because it's the only book which really gives you examples of what the lawyer says you should be doing. Right. And right. And it, it relates it to, cause like you, we can all pull up a, a closing argument or, or an opening statement that we've heard is good. And it's obviously very specific to the case. So we can read it and say it's good, but it's another thing to try to apply it. But this has um, neat right. sort of lessons and tips interjected in it. So I'm excited. I'm going to read the whole book for sure. Good. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, I just want to make sure that we, that we've let our audience know about the, the, the whole case. I mean, so basically they started this company and they, and they had these three minority partners who uh, basically did, uh, it sounds like a hundred percent of the work or almost a hundred percent of the work in getting these properties cleaned up uh, in compliance with the EPA and then, and by virtue of doing that, increase the value of the company exponentially. Yes. And one of the problems that I had to deal with in the opening statement, which is an illustration of something you do. If you have a problem in the case, 
don't wait till the other side right. talks about it. You talk about it. It was right up. It was in the first few minutes of my opening statement. I said, Mr. Sales is going to come in here and tell you that these guys are being paid a thousand times. They got, they're asking for more than a thousand times what they invested. They invested like $30,000 each. And they're coming in here and asking for $35 million. Right. Uh, that's ridiculous. We give, we offer them 3 million, 3 million is a hell of a return, uh, on a $30,000 investment in seven years. So that was going to, I knew that was his argument. They're greedy. Right. Uh, and I had to come in and say, wait a second, you know, people, that's the way America operates. If you get lucky on buying the right stock or betting on the right horse, or whatever it is, and you know, and you're entitled. That's what the free enterprise system is about, right? Well, you and, and that limit. was you uh, don't I'm, limit, put a cap. There's no cap on what you can make. Exactly, and I'm and I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off there, but the um, I mean, that was the whole purpose of that company was to incentivize these guys to work hard to make the value of that company so much, and then when it came time to pay up the majority uh, shareholders in L industries uh, didn't want to pay. And so they did a number of things in order to de decrease the value of that, uh, of the company. Right. And uh, so, uh, uh, and, and the, you know, uh, the case, I think the reason I was, we were, very, and sometimes you get very lucky. Uh, the facts were good for us. But one thing I learned in that case, now hopefully I taught people because now it's the biggest thing. I, when I represent a defendant in a case, I go in and tell them, unless you are prepared to have the chairman of the board and CEO come sit in court during the entire trial, you might as write, well write a check right now for whatever the plaintiff is asking because the one thing that juries are not forgiving about is where people with relevant knowledge don't come to court. Right. So the biggest argument I make in any case is that if as a plaintiff is that the big wig corporate executives who know the facts don't come here. Yeah. And, and that's what happened in this case. I mean, the, the uh, top executives, Mr. Simmons and two of his top lieutenants didn't even come to testify. Uh, they did not walk in the courtroom door. And so it's very easy in a case uh, to uh, to try an empty chair. Right. Or the missing documents. They don't produce documents that they should have had. And, and you know, you uh, you then argue that to the jury. You, you, one of the most important things about a good, effective lawyer is you got to, it's not the law, it's your common sense. You have to have common sense. Uh, you know, first they had, so one of their defenses in this case, by the way, their big defense was that our guys did bad work. They screwed up. Right. You know, they were the three guys, the three plaintiffs, they had, they had a counterclaim against, they were stupid enough to have a counterclaim <laughs> against the three plaintiffs. They should have never done that. Right. Because then they looked bad. They didn't, couldn't back it up. And I was able to get up in closing and say, these people, my clients work for NL Industries. One of them worked for seven years and the other two had been employees 
before they were sh minority shareholders for a year, for decades. Not once while they were there did they get criticized. They were promoted repeatedly and praised for what they were doing. How can it be that now they come into court and they have all these complaints about what we were doing? Right. That's the kind of logic that the average person, I mean, the average juror, you don't have to be a genius to think about that. If there was something wrong, someone would have said something about it, not waited till you get sued. Right. Uh, right. Well, um, I wanted to ask, you mentioned that, um, that uh, Simmons and kind of his, um, some of his top lieutenants didn't come to the trial. Had you, um, had y'all deposed them earlier in the case or had you just kind of let them sort of set this empty chair up? Well, with Harold Simmons, we deposed him. We did not, I don't recall deposing the other two. And, uh, but, uh, you know, even Harold Simmons, the, I don't, I'm not sure we ever played Harold Simmons deposition. Frankly, uh, I don't think we did because he looked like an old man when I deposed him. He was very uh, decrepit mm -hmm. and it looked like uh, some young lawyer was beating up on an old guy. And I thought that would be sympathetic for the jury. So we never even played his deposition. Gotcha. So the jury was able to imagine him being, uh, you know, a Darth Vader type with it, not ever seeing him. <laughs> right. Their imagination was better than seeing him for real. The other two, we never even deposed for the reason I suspected. When you take a deposition, the other side can use it too. But, right. Uh, they, no, one sh no one got to see what Harold Simmons looked like in this trial. <laughs> Well, Got you know, I, I was wondering about that when you were putting this case together. I mean, you're in Dallas County. Harold Simmons is uh, from Dallas or lives in Dallas. And he's, uh, uh, I'm assuming, I mean, he was a billionaire. I'm, uh, you know, I'm assuming he's a very well-known person. Maybe, maybe well-liked, maybe not. I, I was just wondering how you went about addressing the fact that you're in his county uh, and, you know, suing this person who's very well-known and, and how you went after that. Well, you do it. In, in in Texas, another one of the things I got a, Dick Sales to agree on is that normally when you select a jury, you get very little information about the jurors. Uh, you get a form of, that they fill out when they come to the courthouse that the court gives them, gives their name, their prior employer, their spouse, their spouse's employer, their level of education, and that's about it whether they served on a jury before smart lawyers will what smart lawyers do is you hire a jury consultant and both of us had both Dick sales had a jury consultant and I had a jury consultant. We both had jury consultants and we both mock tried the case. And so I mock tried the case in Dallas County and dude mock trying it. We knew we were going to get a pretty good result. We also were able to develop a questionnaire that the judge allowed us because it was by an agreement to make every juror fill out before we even began the voir dire process of selecting juries. So we were able to identify anyone who might have a relationship with Harold Simmons. No one knew Harold Simmons. No one even on the jury had heard of Harold Simmons. He was known in a lot of circles, but you know, you'd be surprised in a city as large as Dallas. Uh, right. we didn't, and another, another <laughs> trick of the trade, so to speak, is I have learned over time that judges don't like 
judges like to set their complicated cases in the summer, <laughs> August. This trial took place in August or July. And when you set a case in the summer, the judges set it because, you know, to punish the lawyers, I guess. <laughs> right, right, yeah. <laughs> but the plaintiff's lawyer, if you want a jury that is not, which normally the plaintiff wants a jury that is not so well educated, so highly employed, you don't want to get all CEOs on the jury. Uh, those people, you get more unemployed, retired people, students during the summer than you'd get. So if I'm a plaintiff and I get a case set during July or August, I'm thrilled. Although my wife's not thrilled. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I'm thrilled because you get a good plaintiff's jury in the summer. And, and, but we, we were able to get rid of anyone who knew anything about Harold Simmons. Okay. Uh, and, and in state court in Texas, we have pretty well unlimited voir dire. I mean, and the jury consultant, both of us had our jury consultants in the trial. Uh, for a lot of the trial, we had them in the courtroom. I think we may have even used a, uh, a shadow jury, maybe the first few days to see how we were doing. You know, that's where you get people right. who sit in the courtroom and report to your jury consultant in the evening. And so, uh, uh, but, uh, that's, that's what we did. That's a, a funny story while well, I'm talking about jury consultants. This is not in the transcript, but it's just uh, for your listeners. It'll be so when the case was over. I mean, when I finished my closing argument, there was a jury consultant in the courtroom, a lawyer in Dallas named Lisa blue, who was not working for either side. She just came to see two good lawyers, three good lawyers, do a closing argument. She came over to me after the argument and she said to me, you, you were great. You're going to get a lot of money, but Steve, why aren't you wearing a wedding ring? <laughs> and I said, Lisa, I've been married more than 40 years now and I've never worn a wedding ring. She says, if you wear a wedding ring, you will get more money. <laughs> and and I, as she also told me, she said, why are you wearing a brown suit? I said, Lisa, I heard that a brown suit's trustful. People trust people in brown. Right. She said, that's ridiculous. <laughs> brown, is, brown is like a, a United Parcel Service or whatever that company is, the Federal Express, you know, the company. Right. Yeah. That's brown. Uh, <laughs> blue. It's got to be a blue with a red, you know, a red tie or blue tie. And get yourself a wedding ring. So ever since that July, that summer in California, I went to a jewelry store. My wife was out of town. And when she came back, I had a wedding ring on. I haven't taken it off, <laughs> I haven't taken it off since. And I, and I got rid of all my brown suits. I don't wear brown anymore. <laughs> That's pretty like good. That. So you uh, you just picked out your wedding ring w without your wife. Yeah. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> That's awesome. That's pretty good. <laughs> well, uh, so so Steve, one thing I wanted to ask you about. So so some of the actual ways that they decided to to take value out of this company that that I saw, and I wanted you to talk a little bit about this, is that they. Transferred out uh, $11 million of cash. This is NL Industries, transferred this out of the company. 
uh, they took away the tax deduction that was going to come from uh, EMS. And then they basically tried to take this piece of property that had been transferred to EMS and claim that it was worthless when it was worth uh, a, a large amount of money. Um, it was, a, I, I, I was a little confused if it was 170 acres or 440 acres. And then uh, it was 440 acres. Okay. Our share of it would have been the, the part that belonged to EMS. Right. Was 170 acres. Okay. So the NL had the rest of it. It's, you know, the property, if you ever landed at a Newark airport in New Jersey and rode from New Jersey into New York City, you pass by the worst industrial, used to pass by the worst industrial waste area right out there because it was just the lead smelters and a bunch of old buildings and a town in New Jersey, Sayreville, New Jersey came up with the idea that we can condemn this property, the 400 acres and convert it to uh, development with housing and lakes and office buildings and restaurants, which they have done. And they did ultimately, uh, condemn it and they ultimately bought it for amount of money that would have given it was like 80, 80 some odd million dollars 83 or 84 million dollars was what we told the jury the property was worth and so our damage calculation was largely 40 percent of the 80 million so that's right. like that's how we got to our damages 32 million plus some change with these other things. They were smaller, but the big damage and, and, and because the condemnation proceeding was not over at the time we went to trial, uh, uh, no, it, it was, it, it was over because it had been settled. But at the time that, that, uh, uh, national lead settled up in 2005, made the offer of $3 million to my clients did the calculation of what they were entitled to. In 2005, the condemnation proceeding was still going on. So it was really, the, the other side was arguing, it was speculative what it was really worth. No one knew what it was worth. Uh, and they were content, that was another mistake they made. See, the lawyers, they made a mistake by making counterclaims against us. They made right. a mistake by not calling their corporate executives. They could have done that. They made a mistake by saying we were entitled to zero. Uh, they should have said, okay, yeah, you're, in, you're entitled. They had offered us $3 million. At trial, they were saying they shouldn't have even offered us that. It was worth zero. So had they, and that's, I was able to make kind of fun of that before the jury. That was just not believable. These people are not, what I've always told people, and what I tell jurors when I tell them, uh, usually end up have the opportunity to tell them. This was not, actually, this was kind of a hard case because Dick Sales was such a likable guy. Right. Dick Sales was, but usually what I tell uh, juries is that all this is about is the credibility of a party. You've got to decide who's telling the truth, who's leveling with you, who's being candid and honest. And you will see them doing things in the courtroom dishonestly and uh, smoke and mirrors and trying to mislead you. And when they do it in the courtroom, 
that's the best evidence they did it in the business world five years earlier, what the lawsuit's about. So the best evidence that this is not a credible defendant, that they were lying in 2005 when they made the calculation, is that now you're in court in 2009 and they're trying to tell you that this New Jersey property is worth nothing? Right. Zero? 400 some odd acres in next to Newark Airport in New Jersey, no yeah. matter what it has on it, is not worth zero. Right. Right, that, right. That was, you know, you can argue that. If, so defendants have to be careful. Bring your executives, never assert frivolous counterclaims, and don't overstate anything and concede that the plaintiff is partly right, not all wrong. Right. Yeah. I mean, it, it, you're exactly right. I mean, credibility is, you know, such a important part of the trial. And at the end of the day, uh, you know, if the jury believes you and your client are credible and the other side is not, uh, you know, 99 times out of a hundred, you're going to prevail in the case. Um, and, and, you know, I think it's why so many people, especially plaintiff's lawyers understand that, you know, how your clients do on the stand or how they do in front of the jury, you know, is, a huge part of the battle uh, because if your clients are believable, likable, and, uh, you know, are just honest people, then the jury's going to side with them most of the time. But uh, um, so it's just, uh, it, it's, it's so incredibly important. It is. It really is. So, um, you know, one thing I wanted to just ask you about Steve and have you talk to the audience about is, you know, this case that we've talked about, um, you know, it's a business dispute. It's it, and it's a you know, fairly complex case when you get down to figuring out valuations and things like that. How do you take a case like this and simplify it for the jury, and then and then you know take it to the point of where you not only prevailed on the compensatories, but were able to uh, get the jury uh, involved and invested enough that they uh, felt an award of punitive damages was appropriate as well. Well. Uh, you, you do first place, you spend an enormous amount. First place you, you mock try the case, right? We had mock tried it, I think several times even. Uh, so we had, and by mock trial for the people who are not, don't understand what that is. It involves hiring a jury consultant, a psychologist. Uh, it's not like the program you see on TV called bull. Which, is right, right. Which, is, which frankly is bull. Right. Jury consultants don't do that. But, I, I, I love it how they always make the trial lawyers look like they don't really know what they're doing and it's right. all down to him. Yeah. Right. Jury, <laughs> Dr. Bull. It's like, I mean, it's really ridiculous. And it's, right. it is bad. It is bad. It's a bad development for jury trials in this country because they're telling the public that juries can be manipulated. They can't right. be manipulated. That's all. That's ridiculous. Yeah, but you can figure out what arguments work, what sells. We all do it. Whether even non-lawyers who are making a speech will sit before their spouse and practice a speech, or their children and practice it. And it's probably that's a little what it's about. We and the jury consultant brings in thirty-six uh, people, and from random, they pay them a couple of hundred dollars, two hundred, three hundred dollars a day to listen to mock arguments, both sides, we have lawyers within the same firm, both sides are doing this independently. 
And then these people go deliberate as 12 person juries and you're watching them on videotape and you see exactly what works and what doesn't work. And you can change some of it. Sometimes you can't change it. And that's why a lot of cases get settled because uh, they just do. Right. Yeah. And I, I am sure that Dick Sales, I've never asked him, but I am sure that Dick Sales, uh, uh, Jerry consultant was telling him you got a real problem here and that it was his client that was, you know, sometimes you can't convince clients to do it. So you yeah. get a jury consultant, then you work with your, you make sure your F witnesses are wonderful witnesses. You teach them how to, you, they go to witness school. You teach them how to be good witnesses, not what, not how, not what to say. You don't tell them the, the substance. You tell them how to appear to appear candid, to appear engaged, to smile, not to get angry, not to argue that you're the lawyer. You've got to give them all that lesson. You take them through the lesson. And then you just, you watch for things in trial that you can uh, talk to the jury about. And, and here, frankly, it was my argument on punitives is how much do you need to award to get the attention of Harold Simmons, this yeah. billionaire, who this case is so unimportant to, he doesn't even show his face in the courtroom. How much do you have to hit a billionaire for to have someone leave this courtroom and call him and say, Mr. Simmons, I got some bad news. You were just found liable for $145 million in punitive damages. Uh, and that, you get the jury thinking about, and it's all, you're not allowed as to, you're not allowed to expressly tell the jury to send a message, but you do it in other ways. Right. The importance of a jury is to let, in a public trial, is to let the world know, the country know, the business community, what a jury of 12 average people in Dallas, Texas thinks of someone who tries to cheat people out of what they've worked for five, nine years to, you know, make, give value to or something like that. It's always getting them wanting to deliver a message, wanting to do something significant, wanting to be able to listen to a podcast a decade from now <laughs> where they hear the lawyer that they saw 10 years ago talking about a case that they were in by the way, this one I'm going to use in my next closing podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's pretty good, isn't it? Yeah. You want to be, you want to hear yourself on a podcast? If you give us nothing, you think you'll ever hear about <laughs> right, right. podcast? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I do think, you know, reading the materials that you had sent, reading the, the openings and closings and, um, and some of the other materials that, it, it it is a case that I wish I could have been a, jur, a juror on. And it seems like you did a lot of really cool things to engage the jury right from the beginning. I mean, it, even with the questionnaires in the beginning. But um, one of the things I saw mentioned in your opening that I was curious about how it works is, is the juror notebook. Uh, they, they work good. That's another thing. We got an agreement from Dick Sales. So that was something that the judge doesn't usually do. Each juror gets a loose leaf notebook. The notebook has in it, the first thing is a brief and agreed upon chronology of events. 
Now, this is just 2005, the agreement was signed. 2009, it's, it's not detail, it's about two pages long. Then there's a cast of characters. So that the jury knows who these people, who is Harold Simmons, who right. is Michael Murphy, uh, and who they are and what their positions are, and the names of the witnesses. Uh, it will have some, if the judge tells you some what the substantive instructions are, it'll be there, like the definition of fiduciary duty. Fiduciary duty means blah, 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 blah. Uh, it will have in it, uh, uh, key documents. Each side got to select, as I recall, five exhibits that we wanted the jury to have in hard copy during the trial. And then as every witness takes the stand, the jurors are each handed a piece of paper that has a picture of the witness on the top left-hand corner, the witness's name and title, and then lines where they can take notes about what the witness said, and put their loose leaf paper in the notebook. So when wow. they get back in the jury room, they have, it's like their school book. It's like, it's like students. If you're a trial lawyer, what's the best quality of a trial lawyer? A teacher. That's what I am. I'm a teacher. Yeah. Period. This episode of the Great Trials Podcast is brought to you by Forge Consulting. So when a case gets resolved and you've reached a resolution for your client, a lot of times that is only half the job or a portion of the job. Many times the clients still need help on either setting up trust or figuring out how they're going to manage their the money that they've received. And when you have questions like that, that is where Forge Consulting comes in and you can find them at forgeconsulting.com. Yeah, they can really help you out with a lot of the stuff that can be really hard to navigate both for your clients and for the lawyers. They can do stuff like administer special needs and other types of settlement trusts. They can help your clients address and preserve Medicare and Medicaid benefits. They can assist with investing um, assets and expediting the settlement process. They're, they're really fantastic. If your brain kind of turns off when you get with numbers, then these guys can help you out. They also specialize in structured settlements, structuring attorney's fees, traditional annuities, and other financial management portfolio type questions. They can help your clients in all aspects. Please reach out to Forge Consulting. You can find them at forgeconsulting.com. And when you reach out to Forge Consulting, please mention the Great Trials Podcast. Again, that's forgeconsulting.com. That is awesome. So did you, was this, was this your idea? Was it something you had seen done? I'd seen it or heard about it. It was not, I invented nothing, <laughs> right. but I, I have publicized and given, I have publicized a lot of things that I've seen <laughs> that make sense. <laughs> right. Well, let me, let me rephrase. Was it, was it your idea to do it in this yes. case? Yes, gotcha. of course. Yeah. Yeah. And they were all in my, if you will go to that website, trialbyagreement.com, you will see all these things. Jurors ask questions, jurors notebooks, a questionnaire to the jury at the beginning, and on and on and on. It's great. So all these things are things that we do, did by agreement in this case. The judge liked it enough. That everyone liked it. And it was, you know, it's the way a trial should be conducted. So that's another reason I liked it. Yeah, I mean, it sounds it took, great. It took I a would, great, I mean, it took a, a great look. 
a, a honest, decent, good lawyer on the other side. And it took a good trial lawyer, a judge, a judge who was willing to try things that his first reaction was not in my courtroom, Bubba. Right. But yeah. <laughs> after he slept on it, he said, hmm, we'll try that. <laughs> yeah. And to this day, I mean, he does those. He lets the jury ask questions to this day and loves it's, it. It's fantastic. Really cool. So uh, one thing I wanted to ask you about, Steve, is, you know, when I was reading through your materials um, and I, you know, the, the verdict form, which is a, which is a, a very long and involved verdict form um, at the end, $5 million of the punitive damages was uh, awarded against a, a person named Robert Graham. And I didn't see who exactly that was in the, in the, the uh, trial scheme. He he was the general counsel of NL Industries. Okay. He did testify. Robert Graham was the face. He was the corporate representative during the trial of NL Industries. And because he was a lawyer and because he was involved in this scheme and because he was at trial, he got tapped for $5 million. Okay. So, uh, and then the rest of it went to, to NL Industries. And, but then all Simmons and the other two, because they were co-conspirators would have been liable for that too. Right. Okay. And then I also noticed that, that um, and I, you've talked about it a little bit that there was a counterclaim, but there was some sort of claim that your clients had made either false representation or concealed facts. What, what was the argument by the defense there? And then how did you address that? Well, the false, the, uh, I don't even remember. It was, I think it was primarily that was primarily made against the lawyer. Okay. The, the one that Melsheimer represented, but I mean, basically we, we just said that, you know, we, these guys, they never had a problem with these guys before they had all these years, no complaints, no complaints. Even after the guys left the company, it was only after we filed a lawsuit that they began saying, oh, well, you did this and you did that. So that's how we addressed it mainly, that it was just made up. Got okay. It. Yeah. And I, and I thought, yeah, I saw that in the opening, how you argued that, um, you know, they had been with them so long and uh, there had been no complaints. And then after, you know, a lawsuit was filed is when all of a sudden they were becoming, you know, substandard employees or making mistakes. And then, right. Yeah. <laughs> um, one question I, I wanted to ask you because, uh, so, uh, you know, uh, I've, I've had shadow juries used against me, uh, before, and I have some of my friends who are, who try cases have used shadow juries. I've actually never used a shadow jury on my side. And I guess I'd like to hear you talk about your experience with shadow juries and whether or not you think they're, uh, you know, beneficial and, and, and what, what you gain from them. Well, what you gain from them is, uh, uh, and all we're really basically talking about are people who are like, uh, you know, you could get people from your own law office, secretaries or messengers or clerks or something like that to go do it. It's not crucial. We, it's, it's very difficult. You can't match. I mean, Bull, for example. Right. <laughs> Bull finds shadow jurors who duplicate demographically in every way possible the people who are sitting on the jury. That's impossible in real life. That never happens because you don't have the time. 
Right. I mean, the case that you pick the jury on Monday and by Tuesday you're going. So you haven't, you can't go out and recruit people who are identical demographically, educationally, uh, lifetime experience to the people on your real jury. So you go out and get four or five people. And basically what you get in the first, I only use them for a few days because they eventually figure out at first, they aren't supposed to know which side they're working for, but they figure it out pretty quickly. (laughs) And so they don't, they aren't so honest (laughs) if you let them be there the whole time. Right. They're, they're much better the first few days. They tell you, we did not understand what you said in opening. We did not. We want more to more, get more information about this. It's mainly what. And, and frankly, another thing I've noticed that why you don't need them so much. If you let the real jury ask questions after witnesses, then you see you don't need shadow juries because right. you can tell by the questions where you need to focus, what you need to explain what is concerning them where you stand so in the older days where you couldn't the juries couldn't ask the jurors couldn't ask submit questions to the witnesses you needed a shadow jury okay so go ahead Yvonne no 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 I wasn't going to say anything I mean that makes sense I mean like you I haven't um, I, I don't I don't really have any experience using a shadow jury but it makes sense I mean that's what's so cool about the jury asking questions and it sounds like in your case especially from excerpts of the closing argument that your jury asked some really good spot-on questions yeah and and as you saw in the closing argument we were saying as as one of the jurors asked this witness day before yesterday uh and you heard what the witness said in response to that you know or something like that yes we you try to weave Right into your into your opening. Well, and I noticed that one of one of the questions was, um, oh, I gotta find it. Oh, um, they just flat out asked um, Mr. Hardy, which was, so who was Hardy again? He was a con- used to work for Harold Simmons. He was a consultant. Got it. And they they just and they just flat out asked him, like, you know, well. You know, did you think uh, EMS was a success? And he said, yes. Yeah, that's yeah. right. I mean, it's Grand pretty good. They really got right to the heart of it. Right. Of course it was successful. Yeah. Right. right. Um, well, uh, I think we're coming to the end of our time, and, and uh, I'm going to ask a couple more questions, and then we'll let you go. But one thing I was uh, particularly impressed with, you know, in both your opening and your closing, you came back to this theme of, you know, these basic core concepts of, of America and core concepts of, of, of doing business with other people, which is good faith and fairness. And I just wanted to hear you talk about a little bit about, you know, those themes and, uh, and how you drove those home to the jury. Well, uh, I think the, so the, you got to tell the jury you are here because the founding fathers thought that 12 average people, have a better sense of what's fair than a bunch of guys in black robes or people who are in Congress or the state legislature passing law. And where it's a breach of fiduciary duty case, where the the words in the instruction are, you must be fair, utmost fair, and and utmost loyalty. Uh, Those are things that average people understand. You don't have to be 
a lawyer. You don't have to go to law school to get those concepts. So a breach of fiduciary duty case is the best kind of case to try to a jury because those concepts are not difficult to understand. And, and also because, and you can argue this, this is really why I love breach of fiduciary duty cases, uh, is that the burden of defending themselves is on the defendant. Uh, I mean, they have to prove, they have the burden of proof. They have to prove that their conduct was fair. Right, right. That's a strong argument. Well, Steve, this has been just a great discussion. Is there anything else about the trial that you wanted to make sure our, our listeners have, have heard about that we haven't talked about? I mean, you obviously, this is just a fantastic trial. Uh, the book uh, on the jury trial, uh, I'm definitely going to go out and get it, and I think everybody should. It, it, you know, it's by uh, hearing- Tom, Thomas Melsheimer and Judge Craig Smith. Uh, Tom is a lawyer in Dallas. And Judge Smith is still sitting on the same court he was on uh, when I tried the case. And uh, that's a great book. And uh, uh, they, it's a, a largely about, it came out of this trial. Yeah. I mean, Tom didn't know Judge Smith before. And so I would have been, if I lived in Dallas instead of Houston, I'd have been a co-author of the book. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, well, th- well, thank you so much, Steve. This, is, uh, this has been just a great discussion uh, about the Casey versus Simmons case. Again, this was a, a total verdict of $178.7 million. Uh, our guest has been Steve Sussman with the Sussman Godfrey firm based out of Houston, Texas. Uh, you can look up Steve at SussmanGodfrey.com. Uh, Steve, thank you so much for your time. This has been uh, just tremendous. Thank you. I enjoyed it. Thank you, Steve. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, have you reached a verdict? Thank you for listening to the Great Trials Podcast. You can visit us online at greattrialspodcast.com. We realize in the show that sometimes we use terminology that not everybody would be familiar with or that uh, we haven't uh, always explained every part of the jury trial process. So we've done two special shows, one on legal terminology, and Yvonne, that's going to be hopefully not that boring. Uh, we, we, we've uh, included a number of people in that so that uh, we can make that more entertaining and a show on the jury trial process. And we've also put uh, links to uh, those episodes on our greattrialspodcast.com as well as a uh, glossary of the legal terminology on the uh, website. Yeah, so check those out. If you have a trial you would like to be featured on the Great Trials Podcast or if you're a trial lawyer and you want to be on the show, or if you're just a person who has something that you want to say to us, please email us at info at greattrialspodcast.com. Note if you have something mean to say, we don't have email. Right, exactly. <laughs> we only need a positive commentary. Yeah, we're fragile. Yeah. Um, you can also rate or review us uh, wherever you get your podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever. Again, if you have something mean to say, um, our podcast is not available for review. We, we also want to thank uh, the people behind the scenes. Uh, one is Taras Misher, who is our uh, uh, podcast extraordinaire. Uh, he is from Podcast on the Go. And Allison Hirsch uh, from Capricorn Communications. She is a magician when it comes to putting these shows together and getting them scheduled. And this has been the Great Trials Podcast, and we appreciate your time and hope you'll listen again.
Thank you for listening.